Behind every song is a voice, and every voice is a story. The journeys behind the voices brings life to the music that shapes each of us. Brought to you by Visible Music College and in partnership with the largest online Christian music site new release today, this is Behind the Tunes, and I am your host, Austin Black. Together, we will explore those journeys, the journeys behind the artists that shape the landscape of today's music. Our guest today is Chris Hauser. We'll explore his journey of following his God-given passion to live out a life that feels like he hasn't worked a day, how he shaped the journeys and careers of many of your favorite artists and still is today, and the ever-popular Rapid Fire. We're today with Chris Hauser of Hauser Promotions. Chris, we've already had a great conversation before we even started today, really. Thanks so much for being here today, man. I'm uh, glad to be here, man. I love doing this. Um, <clears throat> I was on a uh, Derek Webb uh, live show about three weeks ago. Hmm. Uh, he, he had a string of about 30 live concerts every Thursday night for his Patreon uh, members, and then they would sell tickets. And so he would do like an all Rich Mullins night. Uh, he would do all request night. He would do songs from this time period or that time period, uh, all covers night. And he's done a couple of these with all Cademan's Call nights. And I helped break Cademan's Call in 97 uh, uh, at Warner Alliance here in Nashville. And so we've been friends a, a long, long time and good friends. And, uh, and so he had me on his his show in the middle of his two-hour show to tell stories about 96 and 97. And I was even telling him things he did not know and blew his mind, and it was so much fun. And the next day, he's very entrepreneurial. The next day, Derek texts me and says, um, I'd like to help you get a podcast off the ground uh, if you are at all open, because you've just got so many stories and people have been bugging me about it. First, my wife, <clears throat> since the word podcast was invented probably. And then other industry people have said like, man, I'll be your producer. All you have to do is just get on a mic and just ta start talking and we'll chop it up. And so anyway, uh, like the world needs another podcast, but, uh, I'm, very, very fortunate to have had so many years of experience in our industry since 1979, and I've got a. They they do call me the Rain Man of CCM. Um, right. I've got this bizarre uh, ability to recall dates and times and places and people and experiences, um, and so it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, so yes, happy. Happy to be here. You and I have a mutual friend in Dave Bunker. Yes. Dave is a dear, dear friend and has been since the early 80s. Um, he figures prominently in my story. And so I love Dave and love the work that you guys uh, are doing out there as well. And I think maybe do we have a mutual friend in Jeremy Horn? Uh, Jeremy Horn and I know of each other, and we've we yeah, know a lot of people that know each other. 
Yeah, worship pastor in, in Memphis, mm-hmm. but I think he's got some kind of roots invisible as well. Yeah, he does. He's on our label there at the school. Yes, Madison right. Line Records. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, that's yeah. Right. so yeah, we, we may get to talking and find more and more little uh, little things along the way that we didn't know yeah, about. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask you this. So you're originally from upstate New York or, or just New York yeah. State somewhere. How did you? How in the world do you end up in the music business in Nashville? I um. I let's see. I grew up uh, in a small town. Uh, it was a toll call to, for me from Deposit, New York, to even call Binghamton to request music on a radio station uh, that I w- that I would listen to as a teenager. Um, my dad uh, saw something in me when I was ten years old in fifth grade, and uh, I started doing drum taking drum lessons at school. And uh, he got me a practice pad and obviously sticks, and I really dove in on it. And then he knew somebody in the Triple Cities area, Binghamton, Endicott, Endwell area of uh, the southern tier of New York State is what they call it, which is kind of south of – Binghamton is like south of Syracuse and Cortland um, okay. as you look at New York State. And so um, he checked out a uh, – uh, a beatnik drum teacher over there named Kenny Craig. <clears throat> and uh, I went over there every Saturday. My, dr- my dad drove me there every Saturday uh, for a 35-minute drum lesson. And I think it, was co- it cost five bucks. <laughs> and uh, I took six years of private drum lessons and became really, really good. And, man, something in all that just became music became so important to me um and uh uh, we took a trip around the country in 72 uh from upstate new york we were gone 60 days my dad was obviously a school teacher so he um he had the the summers off and saved money well so he didn't have to go paint houses or something else during the summers and we had the radio on all the time listening to am pop radio in 72 so I can I could sing you pretty much every song <laughs> from that summer, including Muskrat Love and uh, I mean so many songs from that summer. But I, music's just been a thing that's just been in my DNA, and uh, I can also, dude. I here's here's one quick story. My dad my uh, my dad took us. We grew up Methodist, just you know, kind of basic Protestant family, and my dad took our family to see Godspell. Probably, I don't know, 71, 72. Gosh, I need to kind of lock in on exactly when that was. But I was so moved. It was on a Friday night. I was so moved by it. And uh, and are you familiar with Godspell, Austin? Yeah. Okay. Jesus Movement, musical. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, And so I was so moved by it. Saturday morning, I get up, and I walk out my front door, small town, and I'm I, I'm walking down the street, and my best friend's mom, Mrs. Thomas, is walking up the street. And I get in front of her, and I stop her. And I say, Mrs. Thomas, Godspell last night was so amazing. There's singing, there's dancing, there's choreography, there's this, these amazing songs, and it's also uplifting. And I'm telling her about it, and, and then I look at her and I say, and it's happening again tonight. So tell me you're going. <laughs> I'm like 
10 or 11 years old. <laughs> and she looks at me and she's like, oh, no, Chris, I, I've, I've, gosh, I've got other things going on tonight. I thought I was selling my best friend's mom on changing everything because of what I could tell her about this musical that I'd seen about 10 hours before. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> but it was your and passion. That, dude, that's the seeds of my entire career wrapped up right there. Richard Rohr says, how you do anything is how you do everything. And mm. so I, um, uh, and then in, uh, in my junior year of high school, I led a campaign for Led Zeppelin's The Rain Song from 1973's The Houses of the Holy to be our prom theme. And then the girls wanted a song called I Like Dreamin' by a guy named Kenny Nolan, uh, a, a, a hit song that year that is just god-awful and just pop, top, slop, nonstop, right? And, and so the, the <laughs> vote ran along gender lines, Mm-hmm. And there were more girls in my junior class than guys, and so they voted Kenny Nolan in. And, I, I mean, I remember running through the halls, banging pots and pans together, getting people <laughs> pumped about voting for Led Zeppelin uh, and the Rain Song. And uh, I go to my 40th high school reunion, and the girls there are teasing me. Chris, remember what our prom theme was? Remember that? <laughs> I'm like, you guys, Kenny Nolan is at best an answer in a trivial pursuit question (laughs) in that game. Led Zeppelin remains the greatest rock band of all time. I have no regrets whatsoever. It was just a lot of really good, good jostling and everything. But dude, that it, that was my life in the seventies. I go to college. Um, I, I, I was, a I, I did not pursue music as a, um, as a coursework, uh, I did not have a good head for music theory, and my dad literally in April of 78, two months before I graduate, is like, well, what else do you like to do? <laughs> I said, <laughs> I, I, it was right out of that first Seinfeld episode where George is like, well, maybe I could be a sports announcer, <laughs> and I said, well, I like to listen to the radio. I, I told my dad I like to listen to the radio, and he's like, well, maybe there's a radio TV course in a college somewhere that we could enroll you in. I'm like, yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> Let's try that. And so uh, Binghamton didn't, uh, the Binghamton Community College didn't have it, but uh, OCC, Onondaga Community College in Syracuse, had a radio TV class. So I enrolled there. Uh, they accepted me, which I've obviously found out pretty quickly. They accept anybody <laughs> uh, with brainwave activity and can breathe. And so... But, dude, I got um, a little side gig at that radio station, at that uh, college. And when I went to college, I became a Christian in 76, but I really spent a couple of years kind of floating and, you know, confused about what all of it required and and what it meant of me. And I was really stuck in a small-town mentality. So when I got away to Syracuse, um, man, I met some on-fire Christians who introduced me to Keith Green, Larry Norman, Randy Stonehill, eventually the Resurrection Band, Petra. Mm-hmm. I, I knew none of this music even existed in my little town. And, uh, and so when I, when I went to Syracuse, and I, was, I, I immediately 
I got plugged in to people. My faith became more alive to me. And then, uh, and then this music was filling me up where I'd spent the seventies in Queen Zeppelin, uh, Rolling Stones, uh, Pink Floyd, uh, Mata Hoople, all that. All of a sudden, all this music that's infusing and informing my reawakened faith just completely changed my life. And so I, um, my second year in college, I ended up having a Christian rock radio show, and it was basically, oh my gosh, I was just so plugged in and evangelizing every, everything that moved and breathed and had, had its being. And so... Uh, so the music was so important to me, and I got a job at a local Christian radio station in Syracuse. Um, the professor came to me in my second year of college and said, Hey, um, I've got a friend who's running a Christian radio station, and I know that you're one of them reborn-again types. <laughs> so uh, how uh, they've got a job available uh, on the weekends. Do you want to go try that? And I was like, Gosh, yeah. So I got an interview, I got the job, and I started working in 79 at this Christian radio station. Um, the, the Christian radio station in Syracuse, New York, was in an area called Liquor Square of Erie Boulevard. <laughs> and there was a bar, there was a, uh, there was a huge liquor store. We were next to, the radio station was next to a, a literal adult bookstore. And then across the street was a literal adult movie theater, a triple X movie oh my theater. Goodness. And, uh, and our joke was when the Christian radio station, uh, moved in, uh, everyone else went up, oh, there goes the neighborhood, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so we were at that radio station. Uh, I was there from 79. We acquired one of the, um, CBN, uh, CBN sold off their five signals in 81. And we became an AM FM, uh, combo, uh, and I kept working there. I became a PD program director at that radio station in 83. Um, and I was, uh, I, I loved my, the highlight of my week was having record companies call me yeah. uh, and talk about music. Yeah. And I just loved the music so much. All the rest of the radio thing was just a mess and I was not good at it. I was not good at it at all. But, you know, when I left there as a 27 year old, I was making 12, five a year gross in 87. Uh, but the radio, the, the, when the record companies would call me, eventually I was like, man, what would it take for me to do your job? And people would encourage me along the way a little bit. Oh, you can, I think you'd be great at it, man. And that gave me a little gas in the tank and uh, by the mid-'80s, I was so beat down at that radio station by management and constant changes of, ma of uh, general managers and all the parade of part-timers that I had to cycle through because the part-timers only made mm -hmm. uh, part-time wage, uh, or uh, rather minimum wage. And so I ended up um, going to GMA Week gospel music week with the dove awards i paid my way in 87 i was like i've had years of weekly relationship building with all these record promoters i've got to go to nashville in april of 87 and just if i have to walk up and down demonbrian in nashville with a sandwich board 
that says, ready to work for your record company, I will do it. Um, and uh, oh, the other big thing that happened for me in the 80s was promoting concerts. And so I okay. became a concert promoter through the radio station. And then I was meeting bands, I was meeting managers, booking agents, uh, and they were getting to know me that way as well. So when I got to Nashville in 87 to go to GMA week, man, I just, a divine appointment after divine appointment, mm -hmm. all day, all night long, meeting all these people that I'd only had phone relationships with, meeting all these people that I would look at in trade magazines, and I was in awe of all of it. Um, and so that was April of 87. And by the fall of 87, uh, Murr Records, hottest label in the land with Amy Grant, Russ mm. Taff, The Imperials, Sheila Walsh, uh, oh. the final Leslie Phillips record, uh, the last Mylon Lefevre and Broken Heart record on Murr, um, and they were about to sign Phil Keggy. Mm. Uh, they came calling and said, we have a position available here in L.A., and, uh, and would you like to interview for it? And oh my gosh, it was, it was, it was heavy, man. I, I, it was a dream come true. And, uh, it's, it, that's a longer story, but I feel like I've already told, I've already gone a lot <laughs> on one question. No, 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 that's, no, I love it. Let me ask you, what was the position with Murr? It was radio. It was, okay. it was an entry level radio promotion position. So they said, um, we can pay you $18,000 a year. Uh, and my wife and I were like, what are we going to do with all the extra money? <laughs> and once we moved to LA, you, realize. you figure out what you do in 1987 <laughs> with 18,000 a year. Uh, not much, <laughs> but it's always sunny in 78. And it's so, uh, I mean, our lives were absolutely utterly changed. We moved out there in late October of 87, pregnant, and we told nobody in that, in Syracuse that we were going to have a baby because oh. they would have chained us to the wall. Oh. It was my parents, my parents' first grandchild, her parents' <laughs> second grandchild, and they would have just insisted, no way are you guys going to move all the way across. <laughs> At the what country. point did you tell them? Uh, when we came back for Christmas of 87. <laughs> she was already kind of showing. Yeah. And we told them in uh, in '87 we didn't even have a uh, our first doctor's appointment. She got pregnant in August, mm -hmm. and we didn't have our first doctor's appointment until November. <laughs> uh, and so it's like, yes, you're pregnant. So, but uh, yeah, but because but it was perfect, and and we called it our three year Disneyland experience mm -hmm. living out there. The weather is so beautiful. We found an amazing church. Uh, when we when we went to the church the first Sunday, there were 90 people in the church and nine pregnant women along with Whoa. my wife, and so like 10 percent of the uh, congregation were expecting, and uh, so we felt very very welcomed in, and that was a great experience. The vineyard it was a vineyard church, and the vineyard is so instrumental in what we have in the modern worship m movement. None of this happens today with Bethel music, vineyard, or rather Elevation, um, any of the uh, Hillsong even, any of these movements, none of that happens without what was happening in the vineyard in the, uh, in the 80s and 90s. So um, 
Uh, I like I could talk about that for yeah. for hours as well. But uh, we we had an amazing three years there. I, Austin and I worked some of the greatest records of all time in CCM. Phil Keggy and Sunday's Child. Hmm. Amy Grant lead me on. The Rust Half self-titled black and white cover with him in uh, at the cliff on the beach. Rust Half the way home, which was Americana before there was even a, a genre called uh, Americana. Um, Julie Miller, who's gone on to become a queen in the Americana AAA world. Uh, I worked her first solo record. I worked three albums by the choir. Um, all these people remain my yeah. friends. And, uh, and it was, I found my place. Yeah. And I found my place. I did the first ever promo tour. Now in our industry, promo tours are just, you've got to do it. You've got to get out, beat the streets, take an artist around, get FaceTime with radio people. I was the first guy to ever do that. Uh, in launching Rust Half's The Way Home record, we had a single called Farther On, and we were going to hand-deliver Farther On. And so we uh, went on a we, – we took a jet, not, not private jet, but we flew. We did New York City, Tampa, Dallas, Seattle, L.A. in two and a half days. Oh, wow. So th- there, were, there were a couple of nights there – with just a handful of hours in uh, hotels. But we hand-delivered, and Rustaf was a big, big deal during that time period, and we hand-delivered. Those were the five biggest radio stations in the country in, uh, in 89, and we hand-delivered those. Uh, I, I, dude, the Murr record years were an amazing experience for me. But I, again, I came into my gifting of talking to people about music I love. Mm-hmm. I did it all through the 80s. I ended up at, in my radio station. I ended up going out and speaking at uh, speaking at youth groups about Christian music, showing videos, doing giveaways. Uh, I emceed concerts, which was a blast. Uh, I loved interacting with uh, fans as well. Um, and so uh, there you go. There's another <laughs> 15 minutes another question <laughs> no i love it and this is this is perfect let me let me ask you this so like we go back to the promo tours and the, and the idea for that was that kind of birthed out of your experience on the other side yeah. of radio i'd I never had a promo tour right i never had a visit because yeah i mean that that was another interesting thing is that i was basically the second guy ever hired out of a radio station hmm. to go work for a record company in our industry the first guy was done in the early 80s. He he was in that record company uh, for a short time and then gone. But I um, I was the first really um, – so I, I was hired. And so when I came to Murr Records, I, I came in with this new perspective, and they were making these decisions about how to promote to radio by people who'd never been in radio. Mm-hmm. So I stepped in and said, uh, I don't think that's going to work. Let's try this. Yeah, this could be better if we do it this way. And they're all just kind of like, gosh, uh, okay. I mean, you're, you've just come from that side. And so you, we trust you. And thankfully they, they really gave me all the, all the rope that I needed. And, uh, gosh, I mean, farther on from Russ Taff, four number ones from Amy Grant on lead me on, 
uh, we we even then uh, broke Holy Soldier, uh, a Christian metal band from the Sunset Strip in L.A. Uh, that was contemporaries of Poison and Rat and all those bands. Uh, and then One Bad Pig out of Austin, which was a speed thrash metal band, um, kind of punk as well. Uh, that was in 1990. I mean, these were – it was a very diverse roster of music, and uh, I just loved all of it. I had 29 number ones in three years. Oh, wow. There at that label uh, amongst the formats. <laughs> My goodness. So, like – Obviously, it was great music and it was great artists. Yep. We we know that. Yep. Do you, I mean? But but was it also the transformation of the of how you promoted it? Do you think it was those two those two things together? Gosh, I mean, that's I, I'll let somebody else yeah. say that. Um, but yeah, the A and R department at Murr in the late '80s was just so amazing and made such great records, and uh, and so you know. There were times, uh, there were times in my next label where some records were made, uh, and we were, we would say, well, you can't polish a turd, um, and so, like, I could bring a song to radio, but if it's if it's a turd, like I could polish it up and show it to a person, go like, look, it doesn't smell, look, it's it's all shiny. Look, this is all this is good, and they'd be like, "Yeah, but it's still a turd. Why? Why would I? Why would I want that?" So, th- there have definitely been some hard records for me to work over the years that I've not been able to. It's not like I've been able to turn a, a really bad song into a big number one smash. Right. Uh, no one's got that kind of power. They just don't. But if it's all together, um, if it's if it's if it's yep. if it's great music with great artists with great promotion, then, then yeah. I mean, and, and that seems like when you say it out loud, it's like, well, yeah, duh. Like, but but you know, like you said, <laughs> you know, it's not always the case. Um, yeah. And and I and I know I know you transitioned to Nashville, you know, not long right after the, the three years at Murrah. Let me ask you this on the on the promo side of things, when you're at the label, because I know you are independent now and been that way for quite some time. Do yeah. you, when you're on the label in promotion, like, do you get, were you influential at all on the records or at all on, did you get a say in like, hey, we want to sign this person and, and you and you heard things? Or is it just, all right, here's what we got. Go make go make some magic happen. Um, I, I, kind of both. Um, especially at, at Warner, I, um, I had worked uh, a Steve Taylor record at Murr in L.A., I predict 1990, and then he left the Christian music industry to go start a mainstream band with all friends of mine, uh, and they became Chagall Guevara. They signed to MCA. Uh, They had uh, Madonna's booking agent and I think Neil Young's manager, um, and that, re- and so, but then, but they could not turn it over. And Steve came back and produced a Newsboys record that was a hit. Uh, and then it kind of, he started thinking harder about maybe coming back with, and into the Christian marketplace. And so I, I had a voice. Uh, I was 
somewhat influential in the label side at Warner Alliance of bringing him back in uh, and helping get that record made, which was the Squint record uh, in 93, 94. Um, but I think where it comes down is I'm, I'm kind of the last line of defense before the song goes to the marketplace. And so um, there are times that people would bring me in and say, how does this song feel? What needs to happen here? Uh, but ultimately, it's like the record comes to me, and then I'm listening very intently and deciding, okay, let's release this single at this point. Let's release this first to make this kind of a statement. Mm. Then let's release this next this other song to make this next statement for the artist. Uh, and so that's the, that's the, the strategy. And that makes a huge difference for how a record lands in the marketplace is how people are hearing it, especially in the eighties and nineties when there was no such thing as the internet, uh, or the internet was just getting going. And really in the last five years, you know, streaming has made such a difference for us as well. But yeah, I, I mean, it, it's a little bit of a joke when I'll get a song to number one and someone will say, oh, Chris, this was all you, all you. And I'll be like, I know. I wrote it. I sang it. I produced it. I played all the instruments. It's like, no, it's ridiculous. The artist did the hard part. The artist and the producer and the A&R people did the hard part. Uh, I just got to serve it up and then and then believe in it and and not take no for an answer when radio's stations wanted to say no we were with chris hauser hauser promotions and, and chris i think we could probably go all like i feel like i could go all day and like just listen to these stories and, <laughs> and i don't want to do that to you obviously but i want to ask you just a few more things if you have time sure. um yep. how how has your role and your job changed as music has changed now streaming is so prevalent what does that look like for you um i would say one of the big changes austin is that i um now we we are using streaming numbers hmm. in getting singles picked to bring to radio so a record goes out, and it used to be like this. Even feels like distant, you know, history, ancient history. But it used to be when a an album would go up, the the, the first single would be picked and go to radio. But the labels would pay attention as to what digital songs, what tracks were selling the most, what had the most um, uh, word of mouth. And, and thus proved out by digital sales. Sometimes those were the songs that we would go, okay, well, it looks like this one is connecting with the audience really well. Let's bring this to radio next. Uh, now there are times where, with streaming, especially with worship records. So when a worship record goes out and we've picked a song or we're on a, a later schedule of getting singles out to radio, uh, there have been times we've been able to bring an Elevation worship single Say like uh, I, I don't know one one of the elevation songs of the last couple of years and go like, hey, fifty. This song has already been streamed fifty million times because a radio station will say like, well, the, every uh, radio stations will say a couple of things. They'll go, 
look, my audience is my audience doesn't know what they like. They like what they know. Mm. Um, and uh, they'll also say, I can't be hurt by a song I don't play. Mm. It's a weird, weird mm. phrase. I can't be hurt by a song I don't play. Meaning, every every song that they choose to put on the air is a risk for them. Mm-hmm. If they play the wrong song, there's other places on the dial that a person can tune to, or they can go to podcasts, or they can go to their own iTunes or Spotify and just stream their own playlist. Um, and so the competition has become more brutal to keep people tuned in to radio uh, and and radio has not lost a ton of listeners in the last five years due to streaming. I I don't see it. Um, we've we've got an, a a really really I mean thirty seven million people I think listen to Christian radio every yeah. week like Christian wow. music radio yeah. every week. Um, and that's not what it was in the eighties and the nineties. I guarantee you, uh, it was way way less than that. So there's been a lot of science involved and a lot of care given to keeping people tuned in to radio. So we'll say, so a radio station relative to the risk, they'll say like, any song that we put on, we're going to have to spend, we're going to have to spin this song two to 300 times for even our most, our most hardcore listeners to listen and mm. recognize it and realize whether they like it or not. So that when, when, but so when we bring them an elevation song and go like, this song's already been streamed 50 million times, you can pretty much believe that your audience is going to know this song from their church, from singing it in church, and or they've already streamed it and love it, so that the moment you play it, they're already familiar with it. You don't have to spend two to three months uh, of uh, with risking all that real estate, risking all that time spent listening to find out they don't like the song. Has that taken... So we've been able to get, we've been able to get ads at radio stations, uh, meaning a, they add the song into their playlist. We've been able to do things like that in the last two to three years uh, with that uh, strategy. Has that taken some of the fun and the excitement from your side of things of breaking an artist? <laughs> you know? We... Uh, that's a really, really great question. Why am I laughing? I should be jumping <laughs> off a roof or something right now. Um, no, no. Here's like yesterday. One of my co-promoters on a song uh, had written to a guy, written to a radio guy, and said, "Do you have any numbers, any test numbers, research?" Uh, because that's the thing that that has increased the number of audiences uh, in audience over the last 20 years is radio stations will do research uh, computerized on the internet where they get a large group of people together to listen to, um, you know, on the internet to listen to clips of songs and give them feedback on. In the 80s, before research, and in, in the 90s, before research, radio stations would like, you know, they do like smash it or trash it at 9 o'clock. And they'd have the same six people calling every night at 9 o'clock with opinions on songs. And they'd think, everybody wants this or everybody hates this. That's not true. So around 2000, 2001, when research really kicked in, 
they were able to get a much better picture of what was working and what was not working on their radio stations. Um, where was I going with this? I apologize. Uh, we're talking well, through, has it taken away some of the excitement and joy? Yes, of, yes, 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 of, yes. In the 80s and 90s, there were basically about 10 major stations without research where if they played a song, then most of the other stations would be like, well, if they're playing it, then it must be a hit. I'm going to play it. Hmm. So especially you had to just work those 10 big stations, but there was a lot of politics involved. There was a big consultant that was involved with each of them. Uh, there, was, there was some wheeling deal in it that, that was going on in those, in those matters that was hard to overcome sometimes if that consultant and thus those radio PDs were not big fans of the song. Research has kind of leveled the playing field, so everybody's got a piece of this. Lots of people can get real answers about what their local audiences want, mm -hmm. uh, which, is, which has made it much more interesting in that way. Um, at times, the research and the streaming numbers uh, becomes a little bit more, it, it becomes less gut-related Mm -hmm. where I loved working John Rivers in the late 80s and 90s, who was the most prominent and most respected radio programmer and on-air personality, and working him, and he would say, like, I love this uh, breakfast song by Newsboys, mm -hmm. and I'm going to play this, and I'm going to play this in Dallas, and I'm going to shove it down my listeners' throats, <laughs> Whether they like it or not, I don't care. I think it's a smash, and I'm going to prove that it is. And we don't have a lot of those kinds of personalities in our industry any longer. We have a lot of people who wait and see. They're waiting for someone else to take the risk. Mm -hmm. And so there's less, it feels like there's less gut involved, um, meaning meaning hunches, you know, yeah. like yeah. somebody saying like, man, I just feel like this is a hit and I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to do it and I'm going to work it and I'm going to meet meaning uh, on the part of a radio person. Mm -hmm. So my whole point was my co-promoter on a song uh, called Fires from Jordan St. Cyr, a Canadian indie artist that's actually got some real success happening right now for this little indie record. Um, she was writing to a radio guy, and he replied and said, man, I, I don't have the numbers, but I just feel in my gut that this is a hit. Hmm. And I'm, and so we both just rejoiced over a radio guy going like, I don't care if the numbers aren't there, the numbers aren't horrible, but I love it, and I think my audience is going to learn to love it. And so I'm just going to keep playing it, and I'm going to keep being John Rivers with the breakfast song in 1994 and shove it down their throat. He's Chris Hauser of Hauser Promotions. And Chris, I want to wrap up with you just to not take any more of your time. And uh, I may try to catch you down the line and just have more of these conversations because this has been just really a ton of fun for me just to hear. Um, oh, let, me, let me ask you just a couple of things that we kind of roll through here. What was your first number one song? Do you remember? Uh, this, is, this is pretty crazy. Rustaff, Rustaff, and anybody who doesn't know that record sounds a little dated now. There's a lot of like programmed drums in it, but uh, he covered Charlie Peacock's "Down in the Lowlands." Mm -hmm. 
he covered the calls I still believe and uh and so we uh he had a song called Shake that was about that was a really prophetic about Jimmy Swaggart Jim, Jimmy uh, uh Jim and Tammy Faye Baker uh <laughs> Jerry Falwell Jr. He he had a song called Shake and it was about God shaking up men's kingdoms hmm. in the church. It was really, really profound. Anyway, there was a song on there. The first single from that record was called Walk Between the Lines. And uh, it is so perfect and beautiful. That was our first single from that record. And there was so much anticipation for the Rust Taff record in the fall of 87 that the song debuted on the Christian CHR chart. It debuted at number one. So it jumped, it leaped 20, 19 other songs and debuted at number one. Wow. It stayed on that chart at number one for 12 weeks straight wow. and then disappeared. Oh. And then it disappeared. People were done with it after 12 <laughs> weeks. And it the only number it ever knew was number one at the uh, uh, CCM update. <laughs> it might have been Music Line. Eh, CCM update. Uh, yeah, so that was probably my first number one song, Walk Between the Lines by Russ Taff. No one's ever asked me that question before. Well, and uh, and it's it's one of the most special ones because Russ is a dear friend and the you know the all-time greatest singer and one of the all-time greatest artists we've ever had in our industry. And... Uh, our stories are very intertwined. And that's a great story. Goodness. Let, all right, let me ask you this. Um, is there a song that sticks out in your mind when you took it and you said, you know, I, I don't know if this is going to make it. And and it surprised you and made it number one. Is there one that, and I know there's been so many songs for the years, but is there one that it just kind of jumps into your mind at all? Um, I think um, I can draw attention to... Uh, Yeah, that that door swings both ways um, through (laughs) lots of therapy and lots of healing, lots of inner healing over the years and maturation. Every year, it felt like for a number of years, I felt like this song is a smash and I can't wait to get this out. This is going to be amazing. And radio would go, yawn, ho-hum, not interested, and I couldn't get anybody to play it. And I'd be like... Well, crap, I can't hear a hit anymore. Oh. I've lost my ear. Am I, and then I'd go to, like, am I even a Christian? <laughs> like, how do I know I'm even a Christian? Then I'd be like, what proof do I have that God exists? I, I, don't, I don't have any proof. You know, I, I, would, I would go dark very, very fast yeah. when I couldn't get a hit <laughs> on a song that I was just sure was a smash. Um, there have been some songs that I've, uh, yes, some songs that have kind of taken me off guard. I was telling uh, my uh, wife and daughter about this this week, just re- reminiscing about Aaron Schust. Yeah. In 2005, I uh, was sent uh, a CD by a unknown little indie mainstream label in Atlanta called Brash Music, and they had just happened upon this uh, artist. Um, who had a little indie record, and they loved all the songs. And then upon second and third listening, they were like, oh my gosh, this guy's a Christian. This is religious music. What what do we do with that? 
They found a couple people, got a couple recommendations, found me, sent me the record, and I listened to it once, gave it a couple of days notice, a couple of days break, and then I came back to it. Uh, and I was doing some yard work and had the record in my earbuds uh, and on my iPod probably uh, at that point in time in 2005. And every chorus was coming back to me after only hearing the record once. Hmm. Every song, I could immediately recognize the chorus again. I thought, this is special. There's something really unique about this. But I was, uh, Austin, I was coming out of a time period where I was rebuilding my career. Um, I had left radio promotion in 99 to manage a band called Waterdeep. Oh, yeah. For two years, got them their deal at Squint, got them off their deal at Squint. Uh, they, they put out two records. And so when I came back into radio promotion, which is another um, beautiful story in and of itself, I, I had to rebuild my business because all my clients went and found other promoters. Mm-hmm. And so in 05, through the early 2000s, I struggled a lot with, uh, with the kind of records that were being brought to me. And Aaron Schust put me back on the map because we had a top 10 song with Matchless. Uh, and then uh, we launched My Savior, My God mm-hmm. in January of 06. And by April, it was the number, number one song in the country. The following year, he won three Dove Awards for that song. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at a Dove Award. Uh, he, he's given away every Dove Award he's ever gotten. And his mm. first three Dove Awards went to his mom his manager, and me. Wow. And so I'm looking at a double ward on my shelves uh, that he gave me. And when he gave it to me, there were lots of tears. And he, and uh, I wrote to him a week later, and I said, dude, 10 years ago, this would have been an idol in mm. my life. But now I see it's just a hunk of shiny metal, and it's the thought that counts. And he said, good, you get it. Absolutely. Wow. He's Chris Hauser of Hauser Promotions. Chris, you got just a couple minutes in with some rapid fire very quickly. (laughs) Um, When I, um, when I, are you saying you've got rapid fire questions Mm -hmm. or you want something quick for me? No, I've got some rapid fire questions for you. Scale of one to 10, how good of a driver are you? Uh, 11. Good for you. That's right. What's something you'd eat for a week straight? Uh, um, gosh, chicken wings or pizza. All right. Favorite holiday? Probably uh, Thanksgiving. Climb a mountain or jump from an airplane? (laughs) I've climbed some hills. I've climbed some small mountains. I've also jumped from an airplane. (laughs) Uh, You're the first one that's actually done it. When that shoot went out, it was the wedgie of my <laughs> life. Um, and uh, that was life-changing. Uh, I, I said right away, I'll do it again. Uh, I, think I, I think I'm ready to do some hiking in uh, September, so I think I'll say I'll pick the mountain. If you have a time machine for one day, where and when do you go? Time machine for one day. Uh. <laughs> This is dark and very stupid, but uh, <laughs> Ford's Theater. Oh, wow. Until 1865. 
uh, <laughs> and, and this is an old joke, but it's uh, when something is really bad, something really terrible happens, uh, it just like business-wise or something, I'll typically speak up and say, well, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? <laughs> um, it's so dark and so bizarre. Uh, I, but I grew up a huge American history buff. Yeah. So probably, probably to to uh, see some kind of Civil War experience uh, that was that was huge for me as a kid. The movie about your life, the Chris Hauser movie. Who plays you? <laughs> um. Gosh. Uh, that kid uh, who played Cameron Crowe in Almost Famous, um, <laughs> because that's a chick flick for me. I weep openly at that movie. Yeah. That's my life right there, and uh, for how important music has been to me my entire life. So. And last one. I should have given you a heads up on this one, so it may throw the curveball at you. Something that you hate that everybody else loves. Something you hate that everyone else loves. Um, yeah, that's, that is a good question. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I know I, I, I gag egg salad, uh, but I, I'm sure not everybody loves egg salad. Uh, slight detour on the thing. I get a little bit weirded out. By uh, when women drive men in cars, <laughs> I I think men should be the drivers. All right, it's the dumbest. Uh, it's dumb. <laughs> it was not even modeled for me by my parents, uh, but I somehow it's like when a couple is in a car and they drive up and the woman's driving, I just kind of like ooh. <laughs> That's weird. What's going on here, right? Like, Is what's that, the, what's the that, story here? <laughs> that's really that's really bad, and I'm probably getting judged by a bunch of your listeners. Right oh, now, it's but. fine. Well, you, I'll tell you something funny. Is is you and Matthew West both said like the salads, like potato salad, egg salad, stuff like that. <laughs> and his his was just because of the noise it makes. <laughs> you can't deal with the noise. <laughs> That's so. pretty great. That's news to me. That's very funny. Austin, he, this has been delightful. You've done a great job. Great well, question. Well, thank you. He's, he's Chris Hauser, Hauser Promotions. Chris, thanks so much. I can't wait to, to meet you and catch up with you sometime soon. Yeah. And just to hear more of your stories, man. Yes, we uh, need to do some Memphis barbecue, that's for sure. Hey, it's on me. It's on me. Thanks, brother. You got it. Thanks, Chris. You've been listening to Behind the Tunes with Austin Black, produced by Grayson Rucker. A special thank you to our sponsor, Visible Music College, a music and worship school that trains and disciples students for the music industry and the church. You can learn more about them at visible.edu. And you can reach the show at behindthetunes at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next time as we go Behind the Tunes. <laughs>